How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS-dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to EMS World Podcasts. I am Hillary Gates, Senior Editorial and Program Director for EMS World, and I am excited to bring to you a special podcast that will give you a taste of what you can expect at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS-dedicated conference. In this episode, you'll hear from Rom Duckworth, who is a paramedic and captain with the Ridgefield Fire Department in Connecticut. Rom is a nationally known EMS educator and an engaging, knowledgeable speaker on the EMS conference circuit. In this episode, Listen to Rom's session from last year's expo on trauma myths and legends. He explores the science beyond the textbooks and drills down to what matters most to EMS providers in the field. We've all heard the legends of trauma care, and Rom helps us get past we've always done it this way so that you will be well-equipped to open up discussions about trauma care in your own systems and ultimately make a difference for your patients. Here are some of the things that we're going to be talking about. In reverse chronological order, the ABCs are top priority. Bang, we're going to get rid of that. Uh, CPR and ACLS for cardiac arrest. Never pull off that bandage. Raise your hand if you were taught that. Never pull off that bandage. Okay, we'll talk about that. High flow O2 for severe trauma, a question we talked about right there. Normal saline fluid resuscitation, pretty common. Glasgow's coma score doesn't really matter. Some things that people get told in the ER. Um, Hyperventilate a head injury. Raise your hand if you're told hyperventilate a head injury. We'll talk about that. BP is a good measure of circulatory status. Raise your hand if you measure circulatory status using a blood pressure, especially a systolic blood pressure and trauma. Raise your hand. Yeah, you're getting nervous about raising your hand now because you're like, oh, wait, are these the bad things? What is he, what's he doing here? Um, spinal immobilization and collars. We're going to talk about that and intubation trauma patients. Now, I know this is the BLS track, but I want uh, ALS providers. Could you raise your hand, ALS providers? Okay, that's what I thought. I like the fact that it's the BLS track, though, because it's going to bring us together on some of the fundamentals. But we are going to be talking about some stuff that is ALS and some stuff that is BLS. Most importantly, how it goes together. That's the key, okay? So if you're in the BLS track, don't start getting nervous that I'm going to talk about fluid resuscitation for a half an hour. I promise it's about trauma priorities, okay? We talk fluid resuscitation, we talk hemorrhage control first, anyway. So, again, if you have any questions, we're going to save them to the end because we're going to move fast. Can everybody hear me? Am I going too fast for you yet? We're doing okay. Awesome. Let's go. I want you to follow, but maybe consider working on changing your local protocols and practices. Some of this stuff, your local medical directors or systems or ambulance services may not be 100% up to speed. Also, some of this stuff may not be 100% appropriate for the way that you work in your system. I more than ever want to be able to help you customize some of this stuff to your system. So again, if you have questions, you need to ask me, and I will be on it for you, okay? I want to take home stuff, not that... I read about one time, or I wrote about one time, or I put in a textbook that I wrote one time, or any of that stuff, I want it to be something that works for you and your patients and your system. Fair? All right. Myth number 10. ABCs are top priority in trauma. Dave Page, me, and Dan Limmer are out in Tennessee 
And we are all complaining about the ABCs, right? Because it's always ABC, right? ABC was put together because it was a framework that we could use to teach EMTs. New people come in and off the street, never heard about EMS, never heard about trauma before. They come in, if I say it's as easy as the ABC, they go, oh, okay. I can attach to that because I know my ABCs. Hopefully, that's part of the pretest for the EMT program. Um, and we say it's always ABC. Airway is the most important thing. Oh, except if you have a patient who's cardiac arrest. Then it's circulation, okay? So it's circulation. It's always ABC, except when you start with the C because it's cardiac arrest. But it's only cardiac arrest is the only exception, unless it's trauma, in which case it's also CAB. So it's ABC unless you're grabbing a cab, unless you use Uber, but you don't like them, so you go for a lift. And those are the only rules that you have to remember. Everybody keeps it completely straight. And we said this is complete garbage. What we're doing is we're moving towards a stupid mnemonic, right, rather than focusing on patient care. So what did I do? Primarily my opinion, I started leaning towards a completely different stupid mnemonic. But there's a reason for it. March. Now, how many people have been taught March, like in a tactical or trauma? Okay, good. So here's the thing. We're going to modify a little bit from what it's normally taught, because it's normally taught for things like ballistic extremity injuries, right? Am I talking about? Okay. So we're going to modify it a little bit, but it still works. Because what I love about it, if I say bleeding to you, right? I say bleeding to people in this room. Everybody gets a different picture in their head. Some of you picture, you know, like a half a gallon of blood all over the floor or blood smeared on a little kid's face in a car seat in the back of a motor vehicle accident, right? Could be anything. Some of you picture the arterial... Bleeding means a whole bunch of things to different people. And a lot of times people tell me, oh, the patient is bleeding. And actually what happened is the patient bled. Past tense... I'm not going to scoop up the blood and put it back in the patient. So, massive hemorrhage, though. When I say to you massive hemorrhage, now we're all on the same page. Got it? Massive hemorrhage. Massive hemorrhage, if you see that, we need to stop it. Sometimes you'll stop massive hemorrhage, and what will actually still be going is some bleeding. Okay, so there's some bleeding. Did you stop the massive hemorrhage? Well, yeah. Okay, now we can move on. Does that make sense? It's a better way to prioritize better way to prioritize. And then what's next? Well, once we stop the blood flowing out of the patient in uncontrolled amounts, then we move on to airway, then we move on to respirations. You want to say B, that's okay. Um, then we say circulation, but here's circulation. We're talking about the actual circulation. We're talking about shock, right? Blood goes round and round. Blood goes round and round. So it's a different, we're talking about we stop the blood from going out. Now let's make sure that the air is going into the lungs and the blood's going to do its job. Make sense? Different levels of prioritization. This is how we teach our people. Plus, we add in things that I tell you, I was never taught in EMT class were absolute life threats. Hypothermia and head injuries need to be on that list, not just airway, breathing, and circulation. Because in trauma, those are also going to kill people. How many people in their initial programs were taught hypothermia and head injury, absolute top priorities in trauma? Not that many of us. Me either. But it is. Still with me so far? Okay. The arguments can stop for later on. I promise. We got more. What, we've got some representatives from the UK, and this is actually taken at Andy's conference. <laughs> In the UK, they use a completely different mnemonic, and the C is for catastrophic hemorrhage. I just wanted you to hear the accent. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Catastrophic hemorrhage. So, you know, they say the same thing. C-A-B-C. All right? Trauma medic. Can't spell. Can't save lives. I love that t-shirt. All right, 
So we're not the only ones who do it. So like I say, opinion, I didn't have a whole lot of studies that were comparative to training on ABC versus training on March, but entire other countries' healthcare system or emergency systems focus on it. So, you know, it's not out of nowhere. Speaking of, CPR and ACLS for traumatic cardiac arrest. So what did things say? Well, I like to take a look at CMS World, right? It's not EMS Rom lives in Lower Fairfield County, Connecticut. It's EMS world. So let's look at the way they do things around the world. Let's look at facts that are sort of opinions, meaning sometimes we'll take the same facts, the same information, but we'll get different expert opinions on them, right? Okay, well, here you go. So if you take a look at what the European Resuscitation Council says, and even the Australian Resuscitation Council and the ANSCOR, because they'll do New Zealand too, and even then, you can read it a little bit differently, but the priorities tend to be, look, if it's a traumatic cardiac arrest, rather than pumping, 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 pumping on the chest and pumping the blood out, why don't we prioritize stopping that catastrophic hemorrhage or that massive hemorrhage first, right? Because if we only have limited resources in those first few minutes of a trauma code, sound like your system? Okay, do we want to be pumping on their chest or do we want to be stopping the hemorrhage so the more, no more blood is spilling out onto the highway, and then getting on the chest and doing the rest of the stuff that we're actually going to be able to resuscitate. Does that make sense? Okay, it makes sense to me too. I got to say, ATLS and <clears throat> AHA and ACLS say, well, yeah, you do want to stop the bleeding, but we want standard ACLS, standard CPR. Just keep doing it the way that you've been doing it, and then, as you can, stop the bleeding. It makes it tough for me. I think it makes it tough for a lot of us. Both of them recognize you gotta stop the bleeding. Me, personally, I teach locally the March mnemonic. It's what my people practice. And I say, look, we get to a traumatic cardiac arrest, I want everybody to be on the same page of the priorities. I don't want me, as the captain or the paramedic, to be having to explain to everybody exactly what I want. I don't want people waiting to hear from me. We need to be able to work together, right? We need to be on the same page. This is not going to work. We do not have the time to go one step at a time, wait for Ram to tell you what to do. So first priority is going to be massive hemorrhage. We're working a traumatic cardiac arrest together. Massive hemorrhage, you do bleeding control. All right. If, if I have more people, yeah, we're going to get some CPR going, mechanical CPR, rock star CPR. You're going to be you know, hammering away at the chest. That's fine. But you need to have your priority. You're stopping that bleeding. You were finding the bleeding. You're stopping that massive hemorrhage. Every little scrape, every little bump, no, not bleeding. You're stopping what? Massive hemorrhage. Awesome. Exactly. Make sense? Awesome. Myth number eight. We're moving along. We've got two down. We're working on three. Don't remove stack dressings. Why were you told not to remove those stack dressings? Right, it disrupts the clotting. Right, because the clotting is stopping the bleeding, of course, except for the situation that the blood is actually soaking through the gauze, so the clot isn't stopping the bleeding. So what would stop the bleeding? See, here's the thing. Here's where we start to diverge between the thing you were taught, sort of the technician, versus the clinician. The just follow down the line on the algorithm kind of stuff, which I myself learned and I myself have taught, versus let's keep our eye on the prize. That's all trauma care is for me. Let's keep our eye on the prize. And our top priority in trauma care is M is what? 
Massive hemorrhage, okay. So if you've got massive hemorrhage, we're, we're putting gauze on it and it's seeping through and people are saying, no, no, just keep stacking more gauze. Here's the thing, I on the price, how am I gonna stop this massive hemorrhage? Well, first of all, get all that crap out of the way. I gotta take a look and see where the massive hemorrhage is, okay? And it might not be just the outside. Blood may be bubbling up like a fountain out of this cut, but the source of the massive hemorrhage might be a little bit deeper in and it might be the blood vessel a little bit further inside. Make sense? All right, your site of the massive hemorrhage, your site of bleeding is not the outside, it's where the blood is coming from. Basic stuff, this is BLS track, basic stuff, right? But people, they take their eye off the ball. I wanna put some gauze on top and soak up some blood. Okay, it's not what we're here for, I promise. Just take your thumb, get it in there, find and stop that bleeding with pressure. That's gonna be our top priority. Does that make sense? That's what we're aiming for. Now, I know some of you are saying that's great, but you know, what about some of the other stuff? Tourniquets and the like? That's okay. I'm telling you, I'm not the only one. Tourniquets are great. Clotting gauze is great. Israeli or pressure bandages are also fantastic. They're good tools, but it doesn't replace identifying the source of the bleeding and getting direct pressure on that. You have a hard time controlling it, and even, even for extremity trauma. Okay, throw a tourniquet on there and let's stop that massive hemorrhage. But we've got to be able to identify where this blood is coming from. We've got to stop it. And how do we stop it? We could stop it with direct pressure. Make sense? All the slides are in your app too, I promise. And if anybody's missing anything, if you want to take a picture and I'm going too fast or the screen blinks out, I got it for you up here. I'm more than happy to share because this is what this is about. It's about sharing this information. So I say it's the three Ds of, of bleeding control. Detect it, direct pressure, and devices. And some people freak out. They say, I got to get my tourniquet on first. Okay, I understand where you're coming from. But I feel I've made my argument. I stand by it on a street where it matters. Tourniquet, clotting gauze, and pressure bandages, all good stuff. Train on them, use them effectively. Don't feel like, well, I'm not quite sure. Keep your eye on the prize. I'm not just putting a tourniquet on. I don't care how many tourniquets you put on. I don't care what brand it is. All I care about is stop massive hemorrhage. You make that happen. I don't care what tool you wind up using and grabbing. Tourniquets are great tools for it, but I don't care. Just stop that massive hemorrhage for me. You got it? Top priority. All right, let's keep busting some myths. We got, we're picking up speed here. High flow O2 for severe trauma. Fact, <clears throat> what we've got here on a number of different studies is pre-hospital supplemental oxygen in uh, trauma patients. What, is it, what are the recommendations on it? The recommendations are don't just dump oxygen in trauma patients. It isn't necessarily helping. How many people here, raise your hand if you've ever told a patient, we're gonna put this oxygen on you, it's gonna help with the pain. Raise your hands. Liar. Liar. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Absolutely. Sometimes we say stuff just to get them to shut up. <laughs> I know. But it's, it's okay. This is a safe space. <laughs> right. But it's not indicated for pain. It's not going to stop the bleeding. Right? It's not even going to necessarily fix the shortness of breath. I know this is where people start to feel a little bit hinky. But shortness of breath <clears throat> can come from a number of different things from uh, difficulty with chest excursion, right, from lungs not filling up, um, from perfusion problems. So oxygen, like any drug, you give a drug for somebody who needs the drug. If they are hypoxic, those are the people we give oxygen. If they've already got oxygen, if they're pegged at like 96, 98, if they're above 94, they are not hypoxic. They do not need oxygen. Asterisk. 
because there's an exception to that rule. We'll talk about it. Cool? Oxygen for hypoxic patients. Um, oh, and why? What does it do? Well, two big things. They're not really sure exactly why. They haven't figured out exact, made exact causative connections. But what they have done is say, look, here's some reasonable reasons why it might be a problem. It increases vascular resistance, and it increases oxygen-free radicals. Basically, when you get up to the top of the carboxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, you ever see the, the curve that looks like uh, it's a roller coaster ride going down? Right at the top, it's super, super flat. Okay? That's because once you get up above 94%, the body's just not absorbing, it's not using any more of that oxygen. Right? You've got all the oxygen pressure that you're going to get in the alveoli, if, if you want to dig down a little bit into how the technical part of it works. That's why. The body's just not using any more of it. So that's why. <clears throat> what it will do is it'll cause um, uh, vasoconstriction and, I say, an increase of free radicals, which can cause cellular damage. So um, we're sort of maxed out on the good oxygen, filling up on the bad oxygen, if you will. Normal saline fluid resuscitation. So here's the deal. What do we know? Big ones are um, a couple of big studies that have come out, um, the SALT-ED and the SMART trial. Raise your hand if you've heard of either of these trials. Okay, a good number of people. Okay, so a couple of big things about this. Um, bottom line, it says we're comparing normal saline, which most places, places have used for a long time for fluid resuscitation. Um, how does that compare not just for trauma, but for sepsis, for any kind of shock, for anybody who needs fluid resuscitation? Well, number one, we don't want to over-fluid resuscitate anybody because we're going to wind up making Kool-Aid out of their clotting factors in trauma, right? The saline doesn't carry oxygen. It makes them cold, hypothermic, which we already said is a deadly problem, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So we don't want to dump unrestricted fluid, but also normal saline might not be the best. Lactated ringers, maybe, maybe plasmolite. I left this slide up. Um, I'm not the one who developed it. The credits are right there. But I wanted you, if you want more information, this is a fantastic breakdown of exactly what and why. It basically said, look, normal saline pro definitely doesn't improve outcomes. It probably will make things a little bit worse. And we have a lot of better options. Lactated ringers is a really easy, better option. Saline's probably bottom of the list, lactated ringers, hydroxyethyl starch, so the starch volume expanders. But the best is for somebody who doesn't have enough blood in the body, what do they need? Okay, let's talk about blood. I just took this picture like seven minutes ago. <clears throat> so, yeah, they need blood, but it's, there's still a lot of subtleties to it. It's not just, can we do it? Um, overall, yes, we can. Can EMS administer blood? Yes, we can. But we're not sure yet we should in all circumstances. We can't just put it all out there. It, there's a lot of cost to it. There's a lot of problems with it. Um, so, yes, we can, but we're not sure yet that we should. And even um, in situations where we should, it's a matter of how we do it. Are we appropriately warming it? And that leads us to the trauma triad of death. Raise your hand if you've heard of that before. Awesome. Okay, so that's the deal. We start with hypothermia. Doesn't have to be environmental hypothermia, but just the body starting to get cold. When it starts to get cold, we remember from high school chemistry, you start to get cold and chemical reactions slow down, like the clotting cascade. It's just the chemical reaction in your body. Your body's not at the right temperature for it, and you're not clotting as quickly. All right? It impedes the clotting cascade, which leads to coagulopathy. In other words, bad clotting, or as it actually is, clotting bad. <laughs> right? So 
Clotting starts to uh, slow down. Patient starts to bleed out. Further uh, going down the spiral of shock, they go into lactic acidosis. The acidosis impedes and damages a number of metabolic processes. So you're uh, giving further metabolic derangement. You know, the metabolic uh, processes are going off the rails on this patient. And as they go further into acidosis, <clears throat> it, it decreases cardiac performance. They go deeper into shock. When they go deeper into shock, they get colder because your body's not generating heat from metabolism because they're in shock, so they don't have as much metabolism. So they keep going around and around and around. They get colder. Then because they're colder, their blood gets more thin. They bleed out more. They get more acidotic, and it goes round and round and round. Here's what it leads to. Bottom line, cold is like putting, letting somebody get cold in trauma is like putting them on blood thinners. That's what it comes down to. It's a big chemical reaction for it. We good with that? Myth number five, GCS doesn't matter. It does matter how you do it. So we know about GCS, we do the eyes, that hasn't changed. We do verbal, that hasn't changed. We do motor coordination, that really hasn't changed. They added zeros to all of these um, coming up just to say like zero is a, I wasn't able to test that. I mean, we know Glasgow Coma Score, a chair gets a what? There you go. A chair gets a three. That's exactly correct. So the deal, like we were talking about before, the GCS 40 update, it refines how we do the GCS so it's more accurate. Bottom line. Make sense? All you got to do is Google GCS 40. You'll get all of these kind of resources. So you see, it's pretty much exactly like it was, except they added little bottom ones that, that they're not actually zeros, they're NT, non-testable, and they refine them a little bit. So this is a great trauma update. Um, <clears throat> they also show you exactly what they mean in the training material. So they, so they say, I want you to test for this. The training materials show you exactly that. And that's important because Glasgow Coma Score is a way that we talk and communicate about trauma, especially for TBI, which leads us to the next myth. You should hyperventilate a head injury. Actually, huge information to avoid the H-bombs from the uh, EPIC trial in Arizona. EMS-focused, fantastic data. Hyperventilation, too much volume and pressure, number one. Too much top volume in the chest as you're hyperventilating. Pressure in the chest with, filled with air means that not as much blood can come back to the heart. Not as much blood into the heart means what? Not as much blood out. We want blood circulating and going out. Plus, too little carbon dioxide, you blow off all the carbon dioxide, what do the blood vessels in the brain do? They start to constrict. That was one of the reasons they said to hyperventilate. Constrict the blood vessels and you'll help reduce pressure in the brain, but honestly, what it's gonna do is probably cut off more circulation than it's gonna do to actually reduce intracranial pressure. They got too much pressure in the brain, what they need to do is get to a trauma doc who's gotta open up their cranium. That's what has to happen. Blowing, going is not gonna help that patient. <clears throat> Vent at 10 per minute and no faster. If you can, keep end CO2. If you have end CO2, keep it within normal range or on the low side of normal. Hyperventilation of your patient will increase mortality 200%. It's important. Don't bag them fast. Tell your people. Hypotension, same deal. Systolic blood pressure less than 90 or MAP less than 70 and it increases mortality 
200%, a single blood pressure drop, even transiently, because when you rattle the head, the brain becomes extremely sensitive to any of those changes. Use caution with sedation and any other medications that drop blood pressure. This is the study that shows us, and it says systolic BPN90. That was always our baseline, right? So here's actually uh, what, exactly what it's showing. Um, we can, can we continue to drop mortality if we continue to raise the blood pressure? We've got some room there. So the red arrow shows us 90, right? If we can keep raising the blood pressure even higher, we don't put the bottom line at 90. We put the bottom line at something like 140. We can probably help even more patients. But to be fair, this study wasn't powered to change practice yet. I'm giving you a little glimpse into the future that we're probably going to raise that baseline. But also, to be quite frank, the EPIC study was not the first study to find this. It was the biggest, most EMS-focused study, but it's not the first one. <clears throat> one of the things they say, and that's going to be later on too, effective intubation and ventilation show improvements, especially in patients with severe TBI. Still hanging in there? Okay, we got a few more to go. Hypoxia, keep those SATs as close to 100% as possible in the TBI patients because we cannot drop below a SAT of 94 for these patients, okay? <clears throat> a single reading less than 90 is associated with 300% patient mortality. So all the stuff I said about the oxygen before is still true, but because their brains are so sensitive to it, and you're probably, if they got a bad TBI, you're probably managing like 10 other things, these are the patients, crank the O2 on these patients. It's the exception to the rule because we gotta manage a ton of different things. Here's the thing, for all of this stuff, if you have both hypotension and hypoxia, even transient, even momentary hypotension and hypoxia, it increases mortality 600%. So we really gotta be on these patients. Make sense? Awesome. We're starting to get into the final three. Blood pressure is a good measure of perfusion and circulatory status. Fact, who here takes blood pressures? Really, I'm just still seeing if you're awake. Okay, good. <laughs> um, mean arterial pressure, much better and not very difficult to calculate. Two times diastolic, so two times 70 is what? All right, paramedic three o'clock in the morning math. Um, plus systolic, let's make that 100. <laughs> 140 plus 100 is? 240, right, and then you just go, hey Siri, what's 240 divided by three? And somebody says, 80, that's right, that'll get you in the ballpark. Now, it still depends a little bit on heart rate and there are other things that can refine it, but if you have a machine like this, that little number right there, right next to the blood pressure, is the map. I can't tell you how many paramedics have said, oh, I thought that was the pulse. Like, no, dude, the pulse is the big number up top. You know what, come into my office, we gotta talk. And now, like any vital sign, the most important thing is rather than two numbers that we're tracking, the map is not only a better measure of systolic and diastolic pressure calculated together, it's one number, and one number is easier to see trends down or up, isn't it? Mean arterial pressure, man, there's your homework. But also, there's even better ways. Inferior vena cava collapse on inspiration. Here at AMS World, seen a lot of stuff on sonography, right? Well, here's a doc who happened to... Um, uh, help me out with a quick little video. There's his inferior vena cava, basically the supply line of fluid back to the heart. There he goes, Dr. Mark Peel. Drops 2.5 liters of water. He's hypotensive. 
He's hypovolemic. Now look at his inferior vena cava. Look how collapsed it is. You want to know if your patient needs fluid? Sonography right there on the vena cava shows you exactly that right there. Now they're pumping fluid into him, and you can watch his vena cava get bigger. You can watch him fill up with fluid. Isn't that amazing? You want to stay ahead of your patient fluid needs? This is the kind of stuff that we're talking about. But check this out. This is just a pulse ox. I'm doing the same thing here. I hypo, uh, um, I'm taking a deep breath. I got myself dehydrated. And you see how the pleth changes and shrinks down? See it there? It goes from a big one down to a little one. And all I'm doing is I'm sitting there. I, uh, obviously, I'm still conscious. I'm also filming myself. <laughs> um, I'm not that hypovolemic, but I could still make those changes. Well, there's a device that's uh, come out of the compensatory reserve index monitor, which basically takes that pleth wave and calculates out from the pleth wave how far off your patient is from where they should be. Does a little mathematical calculation, and basically, just like a pulse ox, using basically the same technology, says, hey, this is how close your patient is to dropping off the edge. It helps us stay ahead. We don't wait for blood pressure drops. We stay ahead of it. Pretty exciting stuff, yeah? There you go. Myth number two is we're rounding it out. Spinal immobilization, cervical collars. Fact, we said avoid the H-bombs, right? Here's the problem with current cervical collar technology. That's my brother, but he expresses exactly what I think. <clears throat> Hell no collar, I would add that H. Collars increase intracranial pressure and ALS and BLS airway challenges. That's the problem. I'm not saying that a collar wouldn't theoretically benefit patients, but also how do collars, um, you know, we, this is what we know. This isn't just my opinion, it's what we know. They also don't actually stabilize the head. Plus, half of the time, what's the process to get a patient in a collar? Right? So, it's my opinion, but also I see a lot of people just put collars on wrong just to say they put a collar on so they don't get in trouble at the hospital. Trust me, you're going to get in trouble you put a collar on like that. All right, we're at our last one. Intubation and trauma saves lives. It's BLS, BLS, BLS. This is the BLS track. We're going to talk about BLS. Here's the thing. I'm not going to beat up on intubation. The right intubation saves lives even in TBI. Do you remember that other stuff where I said you can't even have momentary hypoxia? You've got to stack the deck in your favor. That means every EMT, every EMR, every paramedic, we've got to work together. We've got to practice. You're going to put a tube in this patient. You're going to put an airway in this patient. We've got to pre-oxygenate. We've got to make sure that that sat never drops below 90. Or some stupid plastic tube down their throat is not going to change the fact that you made them hypoxic through the process and you caused a secondary brain injury. Doesn't mean don't intubate. It means you intubate like a rock star. And if you can't intubate this patient like a rock star, then don't drop their sat and make them worse. Bottom line. Make sense? I like things. This is my little thing. Set up, size up, scope, and secure. We've got to set up first. We put out all our equipment. We're ready to go. Everybody knows what equipment is there. And if I'm the paramedic, I'm focusing on putting the tube in. I need people handing me stuff or making sure my stuff is ready. I don't need to be groping around in the back of the ambulance as it rolls down into the footwell. Okay? Apneic oxygenation. I wish we had time to do a whole thing right here and do a demo, but the apneic oxygenation makes a tremendous difference. Nasal cannula, 15 liters per minute. I can stand here, hold my breath, put a nasal cannula on, and I cannot breathe for a full 10 minutes in front of you. 
but we don't have 10 minutes left, so I'm going to ask you to trust me. Or maybe see a party trick tonight on Bourbon Street. <laughs> Proper positioning, bougie, now, video laryngoscopy. Notch, this right is the there. stuff that and helps know, every possible tool. Right All right? Salad, trauma, intubation technique, suctioning as we go. And we don't have time for the whole video, but this is what it comes down to. You're going to intubate this patient, do or do not. There is no try. In the back of the ambulance, on the street, where it matters, you are going to make the difference. You got more questions about this? You ask me. I want you to have the tools to take home. It's not about all of the big tools. Going from myth to maybe expert opinion to fact, that will save lives. It's great to see the latest and greatest tools that they have out there and who's got the biggest ambulance, but it's about what is up here and how you use it here that saves lives out there. Now go out there and do some EMS magic. Thank you very much. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 